0: Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of interviewing my friend and colleague, the distinguished Professor Marie Plante, the principal investigator of the SHAPE trial, a practice-changing study recently presented at ASCO. And we're really certainly very, very excited to speak to her about the details of the study. Of course, it's unpublished yet, uh, but we have uh, lots of questions that hopefully we'll be able to cover. Um, but we, uh, first of all, Marie, thank you so, so much, and congratulations. What an amazing, amazing achievement uh, to you and to all of your investigators. Uh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Pedro, for the kind words. Um, um, indeed, it's, uh, it's a big accomplishment because it's just been going on, uh, as you perhaps know, for 15 years now. <laughs> Uh, from the moment that we developed the the protocol and the concept to the time that we got the funding, that we got the accrual, that we got the the follow-ups. And so it's 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, it is a team effort. It's not just me. It's all the people who collaborated and contributed to the trial. So it's really uh, uh, our success, not not necessarily mine, but uh, take somebody to carry the load. And that's, uh, that's the way it is. Yeah.
0: Amazing, amazing, and yes, and we're, we're going to talk about the longevity of the study as well. I want to start by discussing, you know, a little bit about the history behind the Shape Trial. Um, when did you conceive the trial exactly? And and you mentioned it was 15 years, which is uh, an amazing, an amazing accomplishment, um, as well as you know discussing the the total number of sites and countries that were involved in this study.
1: So, uh, the concept was officially developed uh, at one of the GCIG, which is Gynecologic Cancer Intergroup. Uh, Every so many years, there's a brainstorming session on a particular disease site. So, in 2008 was the cervix uh, brainstorming session. And then um, it was a time where, you know, the trichlectomy was evolving, it was coming up into practice. And so, um, I had this, this idea of um, doing a randomized trial comparing radical HIST to simple HIST. And in fact, at the very beginning, I wanted a parallel protocol of radical trachlectomy and simple trachlectomy with the same essentially uh, criteria. But then uh, at that time, people were a little bit not on, not so sure about the trachlectomy and thinking it was going to take too many patients and it was going to... too. So anyway, so we concentrated on the, the, the non-fertility uh, preserving um, option and this is how we developed the the, the the protocol or the concept, and it was then approved. And that's how we then moved on to to develop the protocol, which took you know the writing and everything at least a, a year and a half to two years. And then and then because it's an investigator initiated trial, then it adds up the complexity of having to find some funding so we had to apply for uh, a CIHR which is a we had a 1.2 million grant which at that time was very significant mm-hmm. and the cancer uh Canadian Cancer Society to uh, to get started and launch the meeting and as you know all the other cooperative groups who were interested in joining the trial also had to do the same that is raise and find money and that's really a shame that you know investigator trials are so difficult to complete because when it's not pharma trial and you need to raise the money, it delays by several years uh, the completion of studies. But nevertheless, it sort of worked out in the end.
0: Yeah, amazing. And uh, and, and Marie, do you have a number of, uh, at the end of how many, how many sites participated?
1: So 12 countries participated uh, with a total of 130 different centers. Wow. So it's, it's huge. Yeah, it was yeah. very enormous, yeah.
0: And, and Marie, can we talk a, a little bit about like the, the scientific rationale? Um, you know, in other words, like what, what data was there back in 2008 to say, maybe this is safe and we should explore it.
1: Right. Well, as you know, there there was already a trend that was starting back then uh, where people were sort of wondering, you know, do we really have to be to, to do radical surgery. Um, There were a lot of retrospective study, which is that suggested that the rate of parametral infiltration, you know, with low risk, low risk disease was actually quite low. And at the same time, wondering, you know, if we could reduce the the morbidity uh, of radical surgery. Um, you know, In other words, the surgical de-escalation sort of trend uh, for cancer survivors, in fact, to not uh, to be alive but to suffer side effects, not nice. So mm-hmm. that was really the, the idea is to see whether we could offer the same oncologic safety with a simple hysterectomy but with less morbidity and better quality of life was really the, the sort of concept. yeah.
0: Great. And um, if you just go over for for our audience, uh, the primary objective of SHAPE and what were some of the secondary objectives?
1: Right. So the primary objective of the trial was the pelvic recurrence at three years. And uh, other uh, were extra pelvic recurrence, uh, overall survival, overall recurrences. Uh, Then we incorporated the morbidity, the quality of life, and patient-reported outcomes. Um, um, We also looked at rates of positive nodes, rates of positive margins, rates of paramutual infiltration. So those were all secondary outcomes that we collected data on.
0: Yeah, and and when it comes to the uh, inclusion criteria, if you can just uh, go over those because I remember, of course, when we started conserve, they yep. wanted to be very very strict with regards to the ultra low risk population. Oh, and absolutely, I still remember the argument about including lymphovascular invasion obviously. versus not, and we were not allowed to in the conserve. So, what were your inclusion criteria?
1: Right. So, so, so as you know, there are no official criteria, but. Most people agree that we're talking with lesions under two centimeters, number one. But that's not the only criteria. That's what people are going to have to be very careful. Secondarily, uh, we included all grades, grades one, two, and threes. The LVSI were not an exclusion criteria can, as opposed to Contessa. Mm-hmm. And then we included patients with limited cervical depth of stromal invasion. And I think that's key in the selection of patients. That means that when patients had a preoperative leap or cone, the depth of invasion has to be less than 10 millimeter. In other words, if you have someone who has a less than two centimeter, but 13 millimeter depth of invasion, normally it shouldn't be a criteria. The Mm -hmm. other criteria was the depth of invasion uh, on the preoperative MRI, and it had to be less than 50% stromal invasion why because we know that the deeper the depth of invasion the higher likelihood of you know lymph node metastasis and so on so those are the main criteria to be included in the study we include obviously in terms of histology the usual hpv related histology that means squamous adenocarcinoma and adenosquamous
0: okay great Um, And um, and Marie, can you talk just briefly about uh, the statistical considerations of of the study to meet the primary uh, objective?
1: Right, so we, uh, as you know, have 700 patients on trial. And in order to, um, let me just, uh, hold on a second. Right, so as you know, it's a 700 uh, patient trial and it's a non-inferiority trial. Uh, so, uh, we estimated the pelvic relapse rate at three years using a Kaplan Meyer method. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a little bit technical, but nevertheless, some people will, will, will follow me. But the non inferiority of simple histo rad hist is claimed if the upper one sided 95% confidence limit. For the difference in the public recurrence rate at three years between the two procedure was lower or equal to four percent. So four percent was our upper boundary. Mm. So with the 700 patients randomized and being followed for three years, the study then had 85 percent power to claim non-inferiority of simple hist over rad hist. So that's essentially the sort of uh, uh, math that we did or the uh, main uh, statistics. Um Yeah.
0: Okay. So then now, um, what did the shape show? What were the what were the results?
1: Right. Well, um, there are lots of results, but the, the, the main results is that the overall recurrence rate was 3%. It's 2.9 in uh, simple history and 3.1 in the radius, so essentially the same. Wow. The rate of extra pelvic recurrences were also not statistically different. Um, and we also looked at pelvic and extra pelvic, et cetera, but this is all similar. Um, and the pelvic relapse rate at three years, which was the primary endpoint, uh, with a median follow-up of 4.5 years. We found um the recurrence rate of two uh, the pelvic recurrence rate at three years to be 2.52 in the simple HIS, 2.52%, and 2.17% in the red HIS. So the difference between the two procedure was 0.35 hmm. percent, and the upper 95 limit confidence limit was 2.32 percent. So we were under the 4 percent upper boundary, and this is how we could claim non-inferiority of the simple hist. That's wow. the intention to treat. Mm-hmm. We also looked at the data. The data uh, according to other subgroups such as a, the stage, the grade, the histology and the per protocol analysis, which is slightly different, but nevertheless, the numbers were exactly the same and non-inferiority of simple risk was claimed as well.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. So um, now let's get into some of the details. Um, One of the things was noticing that the majority of patients uh, greater than 70% in each arm were young patients, uh, younger than 50 uh, years, Um, why do you think this was the case?
1: Well, I just think it's a matter of well selection of the fact that with effective uh, screening, um, the uh you know, rates of cancer have gone down. But I think that, that the proportion of women being diagnosed at a younger age and at a young at an early stage uh has increased. It's about 44%. So that's ex- pretty much what we have and uh and amongst those patients with low uh, early stage disease then then we have that proportion of low risk early stage disease so yes it's about 45 percent yeah yeah
0: and and one of the other things also is that in uh, the majority of patients in, in each arm had a previous colonization um are we to then assume that the majority of patients in shape had microscopic disease rather than gross disease
1: so we are going to look exactly, now we have the category of, of residual disease, but we haven't yet looked at how much of disease was that. Um, and in relation to patients who had lipocone versus patients who only had a biopsy, you would assume that, you know, those who had a lepracone probably had less disease uh, in, in the uterus, but the, the, those are the sorts of data that we're going to dig in a little bit more. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Marie, one of one of the topics that always comes up, and you know, I think uh, you know, lots of people are concerned about inclusion of LVSI as a, a low risk. And you yeah. know, when the difference between conserve and shape was that, you know, conserve didn't allow LVSI, Well, one of the difference yeah. didn't allow LVSI shape did. Um, there were a very low percentage of patients. I think it was only about 13%. Uh um, 13% on both sides. Patient. Yeah. Um, so, do you feel comfortable offering a simple hysterectomy to patients with uh, LVSI?
1: I, I do, I do, um, because particularly if the lymph nodes are negative, um, then and, and lesions are small, I think that the probability, you know, of, of, of paramilitary extension remains low. And I think conversely, if we exclude LVSI, I think we also um, exclude simple hysterectomy in a lot of patients. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that could benefit from this radical surgery. So personally, I do. I do feel comfortable.
0: And then uh, a somewhat related point, the majority of the patients were grade one or two. Um, Are we okay proceeding with a grade three simple hysterectomy?
1: Right. Uh, this is the sort of data again that we're gonna tease out. That, for instance, when we look at the recurrences, you know, how many were the grade threes? For instance, or adeno grade threes that were not part of of of, uh, of conserve to see whether that that uh, um, sort of stands out as a uh, as a risk factor. Similarly for the LVSI, uh, did the patient who recurred were LVSI positive. We have not yet done you know all of those uh, more detailed analysis.
0: Right. So now I'm going to get to a question that seems to be a question everybody's talking about this, the issue of minimally invasive versus open. And of course, the majority of patients in both arms had uh, minimally invasive surgery for simple hysterectomy or for radical hysterectomy. Knowing that this was not a study evaluating open versus MIS, what are your thoughts on the approach moving forward if we're to perform simple hysterectomy?
1: Somehow I knew you were going to ask me. (laughs) Um, Well, (laughs) first, uh, it's important to know that uh, the choice of the surgical approach was not, as you said, a randomization factor. In other words, surgeons were the ones to make the decision if they wanted to do MIS or open surgery, left at the discretion of the surgeons. What we've noted is that patients who had a radical hysterectomy were statistically more likely to have open surgery. Mm. And patients who had a simple hysterectomy were more likely to have a a, a laparoscopic or MIS surgery. Mm. Beyond that, uh, we are starting to look at the data and this has not been formalized. It's not final. And as you said, this was not the objective of the study. It does not look, and again, it's preliminary, it does not look that the choice of surgical approach in relation to the type surgery, in relation to recurrences, Mm -hmm. difference. We need to dig in and be very careful about that analysis. And I think that another very important point Pedro is the relationship of all that surgical approach, type of hysterectomy, but also residual disease. Mm -hmm. And there I think is where we're gonna find some interesting findings yeah and it it would make a lot of sense it would make a lot of sense yeah
0: so definitely we'll be looking forward to uh, to those results as well um now I want to ask you about the lymph nodes um you know the, the percentage of positive nodes in shape was almost exactly the same as conserve about 5% um and some and we and the despite that,
1: conserve had no lvsi
0: yeah exactly exactly <laughs> um and you know the question is you know should we Continue to perform sentinel lymph nodes alone, or is there a role for full pelvic lymphadenectomy in these patients?
1: Well, of course, when uh, you know when the trial was designed way back in two thousand and eight, uh, sentinel mapping was uh, in a little bit in its infancy and was not a proven um, procedure at all. So, so that's why in the protocol, a pelvic lymph node dissection was mandatory, and then later on, you know, sentinel mapping was added according to the surgeon's capacity and, and training and so on. Um, I think that the answer to your question is probably going to be more the Seneca uh, three who's going <laughs> to tell us about that. Uh, in our trial just about a third of the patients only had uh, Sentinel mapping so I don't think that we're going to learn a, a great deal from Seneca from that perspective but I think that Santacolo is 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 have has a better trial to, to answer the question mm-hmm. but personally, in low, again, in low risk patients, you know, uh, I think that sentinel mapping alone is probably going to, way to be, be the way to go.
0: Great. Um, Marie, one of the things that obviously we always struggle with is the accuracy of predicting tumor size. And, you know, a lot of people are going to be making this decision of, you know, less than two, more than two, uh, and, and offer a really different surgery. Uh, I was I was a bit surprised that the miscalculation rate, in other words, Patients that were actually over two centimeters was actually quite low, uh, about 4%. Um, what type of imaging was used in shape that, that you guys got it right so, so frequently?
1: Well, I thought it was high. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, right, so patients were required to have a pelvic MRI uh, prior to surgery. And um, it's helpful. And but it's doesn't always say everything. So that's why surgeons will have to be very, very careful uh, with um, first with the pathology, with expert pathology review of the slides, whether it's an you know leap or cone. and to have an expert MRI uh, reading as well, because I've had MRIs with four lines in the report and others with a page long of report and so on mm-hmm. so. Of course, we've seen cases where the MRI didn't seem to see much, and yet there was quite a bit of disease on pathology. So this is the sort of thing we wanna look at retrospectively as well. And I think that surgeons need to be mindful, particularly um, if they had patients had the lip cone and the lesion approaches the upper two centimeter limit, like 1.8, 1.7, 1.9, almost two centimeters. If on the MRI, there is still residual disease, then normally you should think that's probably a patient with, if you could put it all together, probably has a a lesion more than two centimeters. So those are the subtleties that uh, individually, all the cases have to be evaluated very carefully. And and, and then again, we have to carry on the message that these cases should not be done by young oncologists, should be seen by Ghani oncologists with expertise experience and under, understanding of all the elements. It's not just the two centimeter lesion, it's all the other things. Very mm-hmm. crucial, very critical.
0: If yeah, you want to absolutely. And, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you emphasize that. And I would say to our audience, if at any point during this podcast, you got distracted for whatever reason, play this segment back, because I think that's really key Fundamental. in terms of uh, determining the tumor size and being accurate about determining the tumor size to, to determine treatment. Um, this next question uh, regarding adjuvant treatment, about 10% of patients I saw had mm-hmm. adjuvant treatment. You know, it's a low risk population. What were some of the main reasons for- oh, the,
1: Again, the majority uh, of the indications for uh, adjuvant treatment was positive notes. Mm. At the time, that's that's what it was. Okay. Um, there were a few with um, positive margins um, and, or, and, or a combination of both, but primarily that's what it was. Yeah. And I'm glad to see that uh, patients who, who had a simple hist uh, were not more likely to have received adjuvant radiation therapy. Uh, yeah, yeah, because I was some of the concern I had was is that the simple hist patient were gonna more frequently be recommended to have radi- radiation therapy because no parametrium was removed, but that that wasn't the case. So I thought it was it um, uh, was a good point. And th- likewise, um, the rates of positive margin, like vaginal margin, was not you know more statistically higher in the simple his suggesting that the simple his did not compromise um you know the quality of the surgery. so so those were two elements I was kind of uh, interested in looking.
0: yeah, excellent point. um now let's talk a little bit about recurrences. um where did they uh, recur? and then also amazing death rates from cervical cancer exceedingly small, about one percent that's uh, really impacting.
1: Well, there were recurrences um, everywhere. Some of them were uh, pelvic uh, in, the, in the vagina or lower pelvis. There were some that were more in the form of uh, uh, upper abdomen or extra pelvic or carcinomatosis. And those are the ones that, you know, obviously we're interested in looking back mm. in, in relation to whether these patients had they have MIS or was there residual disease, microscopic disease, those sorts of things, you know, mm. to sort of explain. Uh, but again, the numbers in the end are not very high. You know, altogether, there were 25 recurrences. So there's so much we're gonna be able to, you know, to say or tease exactly. out. Yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: But um,
0: yeah. we'll try to. So Now, um, what about complications, uh, adverse events? Uh, what, what What did you find?
1: Well, in terms of interruptive complications, the overall rate was not uh, statistically different um, between the two groups. However, there were three times more bladder injuries and three and almost twice the rate of ureteral injuries in the radical hysterectomy group. Yeah. Not exactly surprising, but I think the his group in general did very well. I think that uh, maybe, you know, again, selection of patients, patients on protocol, surgeons being, I don't know. So because the, the the morbidity of the red hiss was actually low compared to what you usually see in series in literature. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of adverse events, uh, the early events, less than four weeks, were statistically higher in the red hiss. But then then uh, later on, it sort of uh, gets better. And more specifically, uh, urinary incontinence and urinary retention were also statistically worse in a red hiss, both early. And beyond four weeks, suggesting that the problems persisted over time. Mm-hmm. So that's what we saw. Otherwise, yeah. not much in a way of difference.
0: Great. Um, there, there, there was a lot on social media on your slides on quality of life. Uh, what can you tell us about that?
1: Well, yeah, we we had um it was an important endpoint uh, end point of this study, of course. So we had four different questionnaires. There were uh two URTC uh questionnaires as well as what we call the female sexual distress scale and the female sexual function index. So those are you know, well-known you know, questionnaires that were administered at baseline and at different time points during the follow-up. And indeed, pretty much all the, the domains that we analyzed were statistically uh, in favor of the simple hysterectomy, uh, whether that's you know body image, sexual activity, um, arousal, vacation, pain. Um, sexual vaginal functioning and so on. I should say, however, that um, th- those RC looked in uh, very over time. And, um, you know, uh, the radical me was worse, but with time to some elements it got better gradually, which was not yeah. unusual,
0: yeah.
1: Um, yeah. But nevertheless, it's, it's statistically in favor of the simple hist.
0: Okay. Um, so now, Marie, do you see, after the results of the shape, do you see any patient with less than two centimeters for whom you still see an indication for radical hysterectomy? I believe you talked about death of invasion. Any other indications for definitely doing a radical in less than two centimeters?
1: Well, as I say, with lesions that really near the border of the two centimeter, if they have LVSI, particularly extensive LVSI, um, normally the depth or or depth that's that's more invasive than than what we have on a protocol, um, I would be wary. I would mm-hmm. be wary of a simple I think there are still places to to be careful. Um, mm-hmm. and we'll look at the grades and the histologies, um, but at the end, you know. Uh, what you don't want is a patient who recurs and um, that should have been cured, Yeah. right? So this is where the, the finesse of, of the whole thing lies is we want a good outcome for everyone. <clears throat> but um, I'd say when you need a border of two centimeters, there, if there's really no residual disease, maybe, but if there's residual disease on the MRI, I think you have to assume it's more than two centimeters.
0: Right. And One of the questions also that came up, uh, Marie, was that uh, if you now get a patient who had a simple hysterectomy, of course, just by chance, outside of the SHAPE trial, but didn't have any evaluation of lymph nodes, uh, what would be that recommendation for that patient? Would you Bring him back for a lymphadenectomy, or um... absolutely.
1: Uh, I think, like like you saw in your own trial, uh, the conserve. Uh, this this is the group that did worse actually. Uh, mm-hmm. Those who had the inadvertent hysterectomy. So of course, if the lesion is very like I had one just the last week. who had a hysterectomy for endometrial cancer, and then a point a six millimeter cervix cancer was discovered on it mm-hmm. inadvertently. Um, but uh, I don't think that the parametrium here really worries me, because very very much. But lymph node has to be assessed definitely because you know even those small lesions they're still you know studies after studies you always run around five percent mm-hmm. risk of uh, lymph node uh, metastasis and then that's uh, that's uh, that's necessary to find out for sure.
0: Great. So I I, I want to be respectful of your time. So we just uh, a few more questions before we let you go. Um, what would you say uh, any weaknesses to the shape trial?
1: Um, one of the things we have to look is at the, the number overall of patients that were taken off, uh, analysis, uh, for a variety of reasons, it's, um, it's, it's under 10%, but I think that for like for any trials, you'd like to, yeah. you know, to, 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 have everybody on board. Um, I think the data collection was pretty thorough and, and, uh, we have a good return for analysis. Uh, Of course, international trials is, you know, you have the variation on the pathology, uh, the quality of the surgery, uh, quality assessment is always, um, you know, um, difficult or more complex for surgical trials, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that for any surgical trials, that, that's what I would think would be the weaknesses.
0: Okay. And then Marie, one of the things that, oh, you know, and it came up with a, with a, a lag trial as well. Um, You know, many people are asking, well, what do we do like today? Do we wait until the final publication or do we just start asking and talking to our patients about simple hysterectomy if they meet the SHAPE criteria? Uh, What are you doing in your institution?
1: Well, um, first I'm working (laughs) as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> On the publication, and in fact, I'm getting quite a bit of pressure to hurry up. <laughs> My impact, as you imagine, it might impact yeah. the ongoing trials, as you know, in mm-hmm. terms of um, criteria and selection of patients. And so uh, I'm going to hurry up and hopefully, hopefully by the fall, we should we, we should be able to come up with something so that we'll make things um, uh, more official, if you want, in terms of the practice and guidelines and everything. Right now, you still, if you look at NCCN, I'm sure you're well aware, but if you look at NCCN, there are still, uh, you know, the, the new uh, version 2023 includes the conserve uh, criteria. Mm-hmm. So that's published and that's there. So it's a beginning. And uh, it shouldn't be too long that we come up with uh, with the written shape. And the <laughs> but at home, I'm comfortable within the criteria to, well, you
0: you you anticipated my last question, which was when do we anticipate publication? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, working on it, and um, it, it, yeah. it,
0: it de- depends on the journal editors, right?
1: <laughs> Could be. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, Marie, thank you so so much. What what an amazing job, and of course, obviously, legacy of a trial. Uh, congratulations to you. Uh, we were all just so so excited to hear that you were going to present it, and uh, and it, it was just as uh, you know the, the 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 completion of something incredibly impacting. So congratulations to you, to your co-authors. Thank you to all the patients that participated as well, um, and thank you for all of that you have contributed to gynecologic oncology.
1: was very kind of you, Pedro. Thank you very much. It's been really a pleasure to have this discussion. Thanks.